This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by a company I've used for well over a decade, and that is 511. I wore their uniforms back in Anaheim, California, and have used their products ever since. From their incredibly strong yet light footwear to their cut uniforms for both male and female responders, I found them hands down the best workwear in all the departments that I've worked for. Outside of the fire service, I use their luggage for everything and I travel a lot and they are also now sponsoring the 7X team as we embark around the world on the Human Performance Project. We have Murph coming up in May, and again, I bought their plate carrier. I ended up buying real ballistic plates rather than the fake weight plates, and that has been my ride or die through Murph the last few years as well. But one area I want to talk about that I haven't in previous sponsorship spots is their brick-and-mortar element. They were predominantly an online company up till more recently, but now they are approaching 100 stores all over the U.S., My local store is here in Gainesville, Florida, and I've been multiple times. And the discounts you see online are applied also in the stores. So as I mentioned, 511 is offering you 15% off every purchase that you make. But I do want to say, more often than not, they have an even deeper discount, especially around holiday times. But if you use the code SHIELD15, that's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you will get 15% off your order or in the stores every time you make a purchase. And if you want to hear more about 511, who they stand for and who works with them, listen to episode 580 of Behind the Shield podcast with 511 Regional Director, Will Ayers. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show skydive and base jumper and marketing guru, Lee Samartino. So we discuss a host of topics from Lee's journey into business, his interesting perspective on the drug industry, his incredibly powerful insights into how to start a nonprofit and the promotional and marketing elements that will help you be successful. 
the Human Performance Project 7X, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 740 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Lee Samartino. Enjoy. Well, Lee, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast this afternoon. Thanks a lot for helping (laughs) <laughs> thanks a lot for having me, James. <laughs> and we, thanks a lot for helping me. I did read your book. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were just talking for like 20 minutes flawlessly. And the moment I hit record, we're both stumbling all over the place. <laughs> all right. Well, then for people listening, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I am in San Diego, California. Actually, Carlsbad, North County, San Diego. Brilliant. Yeah, I know. I know. Call, excuse me. I'm familiar with Carlsbad. When I lived in Anaheim, a lot of my friends from Anaheim Fire live further south than me. Yeah, it's a, it's a great place to live. Uh, it's I, I wouldn't change it for the world. Great place to raise kids, good community. And uh, yeah, it's, it's not where I started, but it's definitely probably where I'm finishing. Beautiful. Well, that's a great segue. So let's talk about where you started. Tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. So I have zero siblings. Uh, only child, Italian family, and... It was uh, it was not really a reality of most people's lives, you know, being that you know I was also one of the only boys out of uh, the entire family, extended and otherwise. So it was like the second coming of Christ every time you know Christmas or anywhere else happened. You know the the prodigal son came in, and uh, I was treated like gold. So so there was a false sense of reality for me growing up. Um, you know my parents always gave me everything. We were came from well to do family. Uh, it was it, it was it was awesome growing up. I have to I have to be honest with you. My, my life has been pretty good, and grew up in Connecticut. In a small town, 2,000 people. Uh, when I was born, it had a population explosion since then. Uh, 50 years later, there's now 2,900 people in the town. So they gained 900 uh, in a half a century. And uh, it's still a very small town mentality and over Connecticut. I uh, went to Ram High School because uh, three small towns, we were so small that we didn't have enough kids to have one high school. So we had three towns go to to one high school. And from there, uh, I'd always been in action sports, you know, growing up. It's just, uh, you know, I, I played football, I played baseball, I played basketball, but my heart was always in, you know, the action sports and extreme sports world. Uh, I was a bump skier, um, you know, loved traveling around the world. I, you know, I skied Chamonix at a very early age, uh, black home whistler, you know, really, really had the ability to kind of go everywhere. And then I started uh, riding bicycles, racing BMX uh, when I was eight, eight or nine. And uh, by the time I was 13, I made the uh, the United States team race world championships over in uh, your home area, 
Uh, Weedabix was the sponsor. I don't know if you grew up on those, the cereal. I did. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So Weedabix was the sponsor and uh, raced uh, raced over there for the U.S. team when I was uh, 13 and uh, then got into high school. Uh, I had also been a drummer all along. I was, I've always been, my family's very musical. And, and so when I got into high school, uh, the regular sports kind of took a back seat. Uh, rock and roll uh, kind of took, you know, took me where where I wanted to go is it was more interesting and then kept the action sports uh, side of it. And it just had a just had a really good high school career, good friends, good town, good community, uh, caused a lot of trouble, raised a lot of hell and uh, then uh, ended up uh, going to college in Boston, uh, went to Northeastern University. And from there, uh, graduated in 98 and moved out to California. Uh, never, never looked back. It was, it was one of those things where I had first visited California. I always knew I was going to live here. And it was just, you know, it was, a, it was an epic place. I uh, started actually skydiving in California before I went to college. And I turned 18 and I came out to San Diego and I made my first skydive out here, parachutes over San Diego. And I was like, this is just what I want to do. You know, I was 18 years old. Um, responsibility wasn't an issue. So skydiving was a perfect thing for me to be involved with because skydivers aren't exactly the most responsible group of characters. Um, sorry, any skydivers that are listening, but it is a true story. And uh, skydive throughout college. And when I moved back out here, I uh, I just, I didn't want to really get a traditional job. You know, I kind of wanted to be a skydiver, um, but I also wanted to work in entertainment. So I found a company called the Extreme Sports Channel out of the UK. And uh, I don't know if uh, you're familiar with them. They're a 24-7 action sports network and uh, in 80 countries. And they were launching a a channel in the United States. And I was looking to get media coverage, sponsorship, trying to do, you know, the egotistical thing and uh, get my face on TV. And uh, even though I have a face made for radio and uh, they ended up offering me a job as a marketing director. And it was kind of funny because... I had no media experience whatsoever, but I didn't know the action sports world. So they brought me in and I had that job for two and a half years and we were supposed to do a joint venture with Fox and it was going to be 24-7 Action Sports Network. It was the Extreme Sports Channel. Um, we piloted it uh, for after 54321, uh, those that remember that on Fox Sportsnet, uh, EXTV was for two hours and we were testing to see if uh, if that was going to work, and uh, unfortunately, the deal didn't come come together. Fox ended up launching Fuel Television, and I uh, had an opportunity to move to uh, Los Angeles and continue working for the channel. And uh, just LA is not my my thing. I didn't want to do it. I figured, you know what, I'm going to stay in television down in San Diego. Well, anybody who knows the California market, anything south of Long Beach. There's really no media and entertainment. It's changed now, obviously. You know, with with you know the quote unquote, content creator, you can, you know, create content anywhere um, type thing. But yes, so I kind of, you know, put the nail in my coffin as far as that was concerned. And I was looking for a job and I ended up uh, on a boat and uh, this guy, you know, and I started talking, he ended up owning a construction company while my parents were commercial and residential developers. Um, This guy happened to be looking to build out his construction division within the retail market and he offered me a job. And wasn't where I wanted to be. I had always swore I would never follow in my father's footsteps. And all of a sudden, I find myself in retail construction, managing national projects. Um, it was never really where I wanted to be. And tangentially, which was you know kind of funny, was they were really you know we're talking about you know the very beginning of 
uh, web 1.0, right? You know, where dogbiscuits.com was getting $100 million, you know, before they went belly up, right? So ended up, uh, they needed a website built. They needed all, nobody knew how to do it. So I was like, oh, I'll learn. And so I went and I got my uh, MCSE, MCDBA. And you said, well, what does that have to do with building websites? And I said, well, nothing, but I didn't know any better. So started building uh, uh, building our network at our office, ended up learning how to program in HTML and you know, ended up helping that company grow. And then I got some offers to be a consultant in the retail industry and started, you know, doing my own thing uh, and built out multiple vendor consolidation programs, uh, all focused around, you know, consumers and the consumer market and how to build brands within those spaces. Uh, And then as the advent, you know, technology really started taking a foothold, um, you know, consumer data really became uh, really relevant, real-time decision-making, predictive analytics, things along those lines, I started getting more into the data side. And come 2008, remember the retail economy just blew up um you know and and there was just there was no work there was there was nothing it was it was really a bad time i had just had uh, my daughter my son was a toddler and i had to reinvent myself so i went back to all the things that i always swore i would never get into a position to where i didn't know how to do the things i was managing Right. So I learned how to design. I learned layout. I learned the entire Adobe Creative Suite. I learned how to edit, shoot, light. I learned everything. I I just was thirsting for knowledge and I worked for peanuts as I was trying to build an agency. So I was using um, other people. They were using me, obviously, for for, you know, dirt cheap wages. But I was using them to find out how was I going to build, you know, Lee 2.0 in the next phase of what I was doing. So come 2010, I launched Iconic Tonic, which was a brand agency. Uh, and Iconic Tonic, the whole entire goal behind it was to bridge the physical space with the digital world. And not a lot of people were doing that. The iPhone was, I think, three years post-launch at that point in time. Uh, so I became an iOS developer, um, You know, learned how to uh, build apps on not only iOS, but also on Android and how to connect um, the physical with the digital experience. And that was the whole focus of what we did. Fast forward to 2014, we're still running some retail programs for some luxury retailers. And I end up uh, calling a friend of mine who is a former Navy SEAL. And I said, hey, listen, I need uh, some help. Are you around to give me a hand? And he says, "Uh, well, no, I'm not. He said, I'm actually, I'm going to Columbia now. I live in New York. And I said, well, do you have any other, any SEAL buddies that want to help me? I mean, these guys are just go-getters, you know, it's, it's, they're just great guys to have around, but they just, they do their jobs and they, they get the work done. So he says, yeah, I got this guy and you met him, Mark Matzel de LaFleur. And uh, so I end up uh, talking to this guy, Mark, and he says, yeah, I'll help you. So him and I are, are, uh, you know, driving up to LA and, you know, he's asking me about skydiving and, you know, I tell him, you know, I'm a base jumper also. I made my first base jumps in, in 2000, uh, 2004 really started base jumping a lot and, you know, traveling around the world. And, uh, so nothing really comes to the conversation. And then about six months later, I get a call from this guy, Ryan and, you know, Ryan Parrott, and uh, he says, hey, listen, so I got your number from Mark Matzel de la Florida. And I was like, oh, hey, what's going on? He said, listen, he said, you know, I was asking him if he knows any base jumpers. And he said, yeah, I know. I know one. And he gave me your number. And he says, here's what I'm looking to do. He says, you know, I want to I want to basically what I've been doing is 
using um, over-the-top events to be able to generate awareness and funds for veteran and first responder charities. So for instance, I ran from Dallas to Waco, 100 miles in 24 hours. And I was like, well, that's impressive. Uh, and I uh, says then, you know, the next year I uh, rode a bull. I stayed on for like five seconds or six seconds in a uh, pro uh, PBR, pro bull uh, rodeo tour. And I was like, all right, that's even more impressive. And then he started sending me over, you know, him rappelling down in Cowboy Stadium with uh, with the uh, bomb sniffing dog. Uh, and whatnot. And I was like, wow, this guy's this guy's cool. You know, not only did he serve our country, but the stuff that he's doing after the fact uh, to help veterans and first responders is really cool. So he said, you know, listen, I, I want to learn how to wingsuit and I want to jump from one mountain and land on another mountain. And I said, okay, I said, well, it's kind of already been done. And I was like, and it was done on the Discovery Channel. So it wasn't really a uh, a a small, you know, one-off type thing. It was actually a television series about taking somebody who had absolutely no experience skydiving, base jumping or anything and taking them through flying wingsuits and, you know, jumping mountains. And I said, but I think there's a bigger picture here. And I was like, you know, what, what, how are you going to drive and build this charity? He said, well, you know, I think, you know, if we have big events, it makes a big impact. And he said, so my whole entire goal here is to almost build a uh, private uh, entity that bridges with um, nonprofits so that the nonprofits have a marketing vehicle at no cost to them by doing over top events for them. And I said, that's that's kind of an interesting, interesting play. Right. And so I said, what is your, if you had to give me a tagline, what would it be? And he says, well, I don't know. He says, you know, I'm not, I'm not the brand building guy. He's like, I'm the idea guy. This is what I want to do. And I was like, well, you seem to really be into extreme sports as I am. I said, I said, okay, so what about extreme sports for the extreme needs of veterans and first responders? And he said, I love it. And he says, because I'm actually starting the charity birds eye view project. And what happens is we're taking the the private money, funneling it through the charity and giving it out to the charities that are doing really great work, but they just don't have the vehicles themselves to be able to get their own messaging out. And, you know, once he had kind of told me the mission, I was like, I'm in, I'm like, you know, let me, let, let me work with you, help you in whatever way I can. And, uh, the first event was the miracle jump. And what ended up happening was, I brought it to a a producer at the Discovery Channel, and he says this thing needs to be way bigger, way way more over the top. And I was like, okay. I was like, how much bigger and how much over the top? I was like, this was the initial idea was for him to learn how to do this and then jump from one mountain land on another. He goes, oh, it just needs to be like like literally death defying. And I'm like more theft defying than the sport that kills everybody that does it. Got it. And so I went back to the drawing board and I said, okay, I said, how about this? And I said, you exit out of an aircraft, you fly your wingsuit, deploy your parachute. Alistair comes down, docks on you, drops another, uh, drops a snowboard down to you. You snap that on your feet and then you land, you cut away that parachute, you clear an 80 foot gap and then you do a snowboard base jump. I was like, is that dangerous enough? Ryan's like, how, First off, I don't even know how to do half of that stuff other than the snowboarding side. I can clear an 80-foot gap. That's all I know how to do right now. But the rest of that stuff, I don't know how to do crew. I'm like, well, we can get you there. So I brought this back, and uh, the producer's like, I love it. But he has to be able to train and actually get there to do it. So 
Ryan being Ryan gets this thing funded. <laughs> and so we're, we're now literally flew to Switzerland, started training, started teaching him big walls, taught him how to skydive, how to fly wing suits tracks. I mean, we got him through the entire progression. And then the next phase of the training uh, where we, we were basically had targets that we had to reach um, to get the additional funding unlocked um, the oil and gas and real estate uh, mess hit. And I was left for, I think, 2016 uh, down in Texas. So the funding dried up. Everything got put on hold. But Ryan being Ryan said, OK, well, what can we do to still keep this, you know, bird's eye view project uh, in in motion? So everybody had always said, well, I want to go for a skydive with you. I want to go for a skydive with you. So he says, all right, he says, put your money where your mouth is. Raise $10,000 and I'll take you on a, on a skydive. So he ends up getting uh, a bunch of uh, socialites from Dallas and they all, they, they literally raised, I don't know, like $115,000. And, you know, he branded them the bombshells, got custom jumpsuits for them. They all went out and did a, a bunch of skydives out at uh, Skydive Dallas. So all of their husbands, he's like, now you need to put your money where your mouth is. So he ended up raising like another half a million dollars, you know, by having them go out and raise money to be able to do a skydive uh, with them. And, and they went back down to skydive Dallas. So then the bombshells and the bomb squad became a thing and it started moving, you know, state to state to state where um, people wanted to start raising money to help the charity. So he's always coming up with these, you know, creative ideas, um, but he's always looking for the tangentials, you know, the things that you can't see um, that can uncover hidden opportunities to raise additional money to help the veteran and first responder communities. And uh, so that's basically been the story, you know, up until that point with Ryan. And then in uh, 2020, I get a phone call from him. He says, hey, listen, he said, Veterans Day, uh, is is coming up in eight weeks. And this is the middle of COVID, right? Everything is shut down. And he says, you know, I want to do something, but I have, you know, what do we do? He goes, I want to, you know, skydive event, base jump. He's like, what, what can we do to keep the focus on veterans for Veterans Day when the parades are getting canceled? You know, all of the barbecues, everything is, everything is canceled on Veterans Day. And uh, I said, you know what? You did the legacy jump back in 2013 with with you know a veteran from nearly every war. I said, what if we did the same thing again? Brought all those guys back um, from World War II. Obviously, you know World War One. Unfortunately, nobody's still around anymore. But what if we what if we got those guys? He's like, those guys are in their 90s now. He's like, he's like, I don't even know if they're capable of flying, nor would they fly right now. You know, with with you know the pandemic. He's like, I'm not really sure it's doable. And I'm like, well, let's start there. Call them. I'm like, if you get the older guys, everybody else is going to fall in line because <laughs> nobody's going on a look, you know, look like a, a a wimp, you know, compared to, you know, a 96 year old and a 94 year old guy. So he calls them and they they jump at the chance. And uh, the first guy was uh, Peter Bilskis. He actually made the skydive back in 2013. Uh, and then the next guy was Thomas DiCarlo uh, because, you know, there was there was the fallback plan of, OK, well, if, what if one of the gentlemen doesn't want to do it, we, we could have the other one. And uh, they both wanted to do it. And they were all in so ryan went and he got everybody else on board one veteran from every single war um to do this jump and he says okay he's like great he's like so we're gonna do it in dallas and i was like well what if we didn't what if you were the world war one guy and we have you do a base jump off of the national world war one museum and memorial in kansas city because alistair 
did that. He actually, because they had done a huge poppy exhibit about the um for for the amount of people that actually died um in World War One. And Alistair actually base jumped that monument. And so I was like, let's go back there and let's see if we can get it done. And uh, he said, oh, well, I'll make a call to Dr. Matthew Naylor, who is the the president of the Museum and Memorial. And Matthew's like, oh, I'm all over it. And so my mind starts going into costs because we got eight weeks, right? And I, I told Ryan, I was like, this thing, it's going to be over a million dollars to produce. So I'm like, you know, we don't have media. We don't have anything right now other than an idea. And Dr. Naylor saying yes. So when we asked what would the cost be to do it? The museum said nothing. We we will do this to help to remember the veterans. So we were like, okay, that takes a huge amount of pressure off, but we still have to get fire. We still have to get police. We still have to get FAA. I mean, there's so much work to get done uh, in such a short amount of time. So Ryan being Ryan assembles the team and we just eight weeks straight went like gangbusters and uh, we got uh, Fox um, Fox and friends to cover it live in the morning. So uh, Johnny, Joey Jones came out. Uh, he was uh, injured, I think in the Iraq war. And uh, he actually made the skydive um, as, as the uh, correspondent for Fox. Um, you know, we had all of the old guys, um, you know, and we were able to put on the largest event that ended up ultimately through syndication um, and all media channels reaching 8 million homes in the United States, which is, you know, pretty unheard of, especially, you know, with eight weeks of planning. Um, the uh, Museum of Memorial um, paid for the PR agency to to do this whole entire thing you know so hillman uh pr it was just it was over the top everybody pulled out every stop kansas city from from the mayor all the way down to the fire chief police chief they did everything they could to make this a success right so then we finished that and ryan's like well, what's next and then comes into the play the human performance project which you guys just returned from so there's all this you know you look at the life you know i lived in the, since 2015 to now it's just it's a whirlwind of events that have been helping uh nonprofits and veteran first responder charities um brand themselves build themselves um help uh overcome the hurdles uh that 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 they face and I never set out to do it. And it's because of Ryan that I got involved in it. And, you know, ultimately it's become, you know, a passion of mine. And I, I'm fortunate enough to have a really good uh, career that allows me to help others um, like Ryan and like these other charities. Well, firstly, thank you for walking, walking us through. Um, before we get, because I know that, you know, one of the things that you want to make sure that we do discuss is people listening, if they are thinking of starting a nonprofit, if they're already part of a nonprofit, there are so many pitfalls. I mean, people go, you know, they submit their paperwork, which in itself is very expensive. And then they're kind of on an island, as you said, before we start recording. So you're going to, you know, help us kind of uh, understand the landscape and give some kind of tools and tips to people. But before I do, you come from a world of marketing. You work with with some pretty significant clients, including Luxotica, who my wife works for through uh, um, the optical industry that she was a part of. One of the things when I look from the outside in now is I realize just how fucking awful the branding is in the fire service. 
that in 2023, we still have people say things like, why is there a fire engine on my emergency call or in, in the supermarket? What are we buying you for dinner tonight? Like there's just this still this, this such naive, uneducated element to, you know, a lot of what we do. So before we get to the nonprofit side, what is your observation of branding? I mean, you can bring in police as well, but fire is obviously my world. Um, that, because I, I feel like that lack of branding, that lack of understanding by the public is really one of the reasons why we have so many problems trying to force wellness change within our profession. Because from council members to members of the public, there still seems to be a, a mythical idea that we're sitting around playing cards, petting the Dalmatian and waiting for, you know, one call a week. Whereas you stand at the artery road of any city or, or you know, suburban area, you hear nothing but sirens 24-7. So talk to me about branding in, in my profession. So you're not an anomaly. Um, let's just, let's just say it, it, it's, it comes down to a communication uh, problem. I face it every day. I came from consumer uh, and technology and I work in, in life sciences now. And a lot of times, you know, when I'm, when I'm talking to senior executives, I have to reposition myself into their minds because they don't come from where I came from, you know? So it's critical for me to be able to speak in a language that they understand um, instead of versus if I'm, I'm sitting, you know, speaking with, you know, Tim Cook or Elon Musk, the inner geek in me can just go and talk, um, you know, at, at granular levels within, within, you know, technology spheres where you can't really do that, you know, so it's in what I've seen across every industry is, is we assume that because we're a subject matter expert in a given area, that everybody else is going to understand what we're talking about. And we have to refocus the communication uh, and how we talk uh, to people. Um, the other part of it is uh, within fire, you also have the media side of it where, you know, you have, you watch a television show and you, that's what you see is you see a fire engine, you see a Dalmatian, you see the guys petting him. You might see him go out on a call, you know, but you know, the, the other half of it is, is what is that Chuck and Larry with Adam Sandler and, and Kevin James, right. You know, that's, so there's, there's that part, there's a misunderstanding between, um, you know, the, what the fire service actually does, police service actually does, um, you know, and what, what the general public's understanding of what they do is. And it's really, it's a difficult proposition because we all have blinders on, right? You know, everybody asks, well, why is it difficult, so difficult to advertise? And it's because, well, we're predisposed to like six to 10,000 advertising messages per day, whether it's on the radio, the internet, our phone, signs that we're driving by on the, you know, wherever we're driving we've just been, our mind has now just taken it and put our blinders on and we're tuning out all of the noise. So educating people is the most critical part. And we always, I always start there is, is if you don't, if you're not able to educate people, there's no way that you can inspire them to entertain different ways of thinking. And if you can't do those three things, you can't engage them on the level that you're trying to engage them. Uh, and that goes, to, that's at the most simplistic level. So from a fire service perspective, what ends up happening is you have, um, 
and you guys have have this more than than most and, and we see it inside of pharma too is the bureaucratic aspect of it you guys have to operate within you know a very strict confine that doesn't necessarily allow you to be as public facing as you normally would be if you were just out in the general public. Like, you know, you can't just jump on a podcast as a captain of a fire station and say whatever you want. That's why they have, you know, public relations people that are the intermediaries between them. So from from your perspective of trying to help the fire service brand themselves better, um, it's getting out into the public. It's getting the public to actually understand what you guys do. And it's kind of a bummer that you guys can't do ride-alongs anymore, much like much like the police, because that gives a first hand to the general public on what you guys actually deal with on a daily basis, um, you know, the dangers that you guys face. Um, the other part of it would be eliminating a lot of the bureaucracy, if it's possible, um, you know, and to have that, 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 public servant to community facing uh, aspect of it. Uh, it adds more of a real element to what you guys do. Um, the other part of it is, you know, I come down to the design side of it. And when I, you know, when I talk about the design, the actual brand design, it's very like, if you look at a fire station or, or, you know, in say San Francisco versus Boston, you don't really, I mean, there's no differentiation um, amongst the brands. They're just fire, um, you know, where, you know, you look at like FDNY, you know, that's that's kind of where where a lot of firefighters aspire to be. They, you know, they're the best of the best. Maybe, 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 maybe Atlanta is. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but uh, it, it starts with everybody having a proper understanding of what the message is and being able to accurately communicate that message. Um, I bet if I asked you um, what, you know, the fire service mission is versus uh, a good friend of mine, Andy was a, a former captain up in San Francisco. You guys would, you might have some similarities, but I guarantee the message would probably be different. You know, so I think having a holistic understanding of what that message is first and foremost is critical because people have to have that one common understanding. Um, second is being able to actually build the brand. Uh, and that is the hardest part is because people associate a brand as an icon. They're like, oh, well, Apple's brand is just an Apple. No, Apple's brand is a promise. It's got nothing to do with their logo. It's got it's got to do with every piece of their identity, their culture, the promise that they're making that a consumer when they associate themselves with that brand. It's an experience. And I think that's the biggest thing that's lacking from the fire service is that that experience um, and, and what it means to you and how that can translate to the general public. Uh, and then once you have that all figured out, you, you can start on the, the promotional aspects of it, you know, the, the public relations aspects of it. I mean, those are those are all critical pieces. And then I always talk about the tangentials um, within those, you know, always be looking for the touch points that exist. You know, every every single, you know, you, you saw it just in the Human Performance Project. Every single person that you touch tangentially has more people that you can touch as a result, right? So 
if you don't think beyond just that one person that you're shaking hands with, then you've lost the opportunity to be able to effectively promote your brand and actually engage uh, more people. And in your case, the general public. Beautiful. Well, thank you for that. I mean, obviously, with your your marketing background, it's not something that we really discuss is branding, you know, a service like ours. But where I see some of the the wires getting crossed, you know, we see community policing, for example, and rather than talking about mentorship and, you know, interaction with the public, it becomes, you know, oh, they played basketball with these kids or, you know, whatever, which is a great moment, but that's not the long term solution. And the fire service, there was this whole thing about customer service. Well, you should always be interacting with kindness and compassion as a firefighter. But the moment that we start going in and installing smoke alarms and mowing grass and all this stuff, we're deviating from what we're actually there to do, which is to train diligently, to keep in great physical shape, to know you know our medical and, and operational protocols and procedures, and then be ready. And the problem is if you do too much of what you know they they consider customer service, you're actually taking away from our ability to first prepare and then secondly the rest and recovery that's needed to actually be ready when we are called so i think that's what i see the message gets mixed where you know they start asking us to do even more things we're already a jack of all trade master of none but now we're doing these other you know tasks that the pio or the fire prevention department should be doing or even the water department and now you know we're out there as well and i think it dilutes the message rather than when you see us we're in great shape, we're highly trained, we're polite, we're articulate, and we get the job done. So let me ask you this, when these community outreach programs are being built, are they ever coming down at the departmental level and talking to the actual firefighters? Or is it staying up at the top levels, the bureaucrats? And the reason I ask that is because there's a giant gap between those two. We were just uh, working on a project um, for a uh, clinical trial and not one of the clinical trial sites was consulted with building out the program. They're the ones that are managing the entire program, right? So there's, there's this disconnect between what corporate was trying to do and then the people who are actually executing on the ground. Um, so it, where, you know, is is that a problem that you saw to where, you know, the programs were being decided at the top and then driven down for you guys to be able to execute when the boots on the ground didn't align with what was being dictated to you? Yeah, from and again, this is just my perception where I worked, it would literally be a morning meeting. All right, now you got to go to the school and do this presentation, you got to go to this street and install smoke alarms, because we had fires yesterday. You know, and it's it was just a, you know, a list of to do it wasn't really, hey, you know, what are you seeing? Where's disconnect? You know, what, what can we do better? Where can we truly make a difference? And like, for example, firefighters, the men and women that are actually in uniform, the mentorship element, I think is phenomenal. That's where we really make a difference to screw, a, you know, a smoke alarm in a home or even testing a hydrant. Like, you know, I, I get it. But at the end of the day, that's 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 the water department. That's their piece of you know equipment that should be maintained. You shouldn't have a rig of people driving you know hydrant by hydrant testing that. And even the PIO side, 
it's awesome when we get to go to schools and that kind of thing. But a lot of places have departments that do that. They have firefighters that specifically will go off and, and educate and, you know, interact with the, with the public and Sparky the dog and all those kind of things. So what I found was it was just like the flavor of the day. Okay, now we're going to do this thing. And it was just literally that morning you were told, all right, go to the school, go to the street, whatever. And so the understanding, the why was never there in the station itself. So then you never had any metrics, anything to look at from a data perspective of, is there an impact? What are we trying to achieve here? And what feedback, was there a feedback loop even going back to the higher ups of, okay, we were here, this is what happened. This was the response. This was the engagement. Was there any of that? Or was it just kind of show up, shake the hands and then leave? Show up, shake the hands and then leave. And what would happen as well is, you know, you're still a crew that's, you know, in operation mode so you might be halfway through presenting to the kids and then all of a sudden you got to pack your stuff up and run away um you know go respond to a call so you weren't even all in at that thing that you were sent to do in the first place but certainly there was no you know here's here's the strategy here's the the metric you know the needle that we're trying to move here's the steps that we're going to take to do it and then you know we're going to analyze the data and here's what happened you know we had x amount less fires or you know three more kids showed up at recruitment day or you know whatever it was so it wasn't it was always just that thing and we called it busy work because you know a lot of departments out there we're just hanging on by the skin of our teeth on the call load itself and still trying to train and fitness and you know study for whatever paramedic exam or promotional exam and then you add all these other things and it's not begrudgingly they each have a place but there are certain departments allocated for some of these interactions that they would start just throwing the regular, you know, firefighter at who already has a thousand things to, to you know, take care of. So, yeah, it, it was definitely in my career in 14 years, I never really remember it being, you know, put to us as, OK, this is this is the goal. This is the plan. These are the things that we're going to do. And this is what we're hoping to to find at the end. It was very much day by day, kind of piecemeal, um, the way that we saw it in the station. Yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of data, metrics, analytics, um, constant feedback loops, because if you don't have those, there's no way for you to ever get the entire team on the same page. But also everybody being on the same page is critical, you know, so when you have that disconnect, you know, it's it's almost imagine if the military ran that way. Imagine if if the higher ups just said, you know what, just charge in. And I mean, we, we're not worried about Intel. We're not worried about getting any. I mean, it would be it would be absolute chaos. I mean, we would never, never be able to function that way. And when I look at business and and from nonprofit perspective it's a business i mean it's just a you know it's a different type of business um if if you not everybody is on the same page and everybody's kind of running in disparate directions doing their own thing which happens a lot in you know businesses that have their acts together uh no less you know small nonprofits that are just starting up it, it, it creates chaos and you can't possibly build and grow if everybody's running their own agenda. Everybody has to be focused on what that brand is, what that promises, and then how they're going to execute as a team. Uh, you know, I learned a lot from, you know, listening to Ryan tell his stories about, you know, the SEAL teams and how how they function, how they operate. And from my perspective, it's helped me be a better leader to my company, to my peers, um, because it's helped me understand that if we're not all aligned on the same page or if one thing is out of sync, 
it, it can be catastrophic. Um, you know, obviously not loss of life catastrophic, but loss of client catastrophic. Um, you know, and if you're dealing with nonprofits and you're, you know, say, say you're, you know, going to uh discuss uh a year-long program with a potential corporate sponsor, and you know, you're you're not completely aligned, you don't have your messaging, you know, completely in sync you're going to have a problem getting that person to buy off number one on what your mission is. But number two, are you capable of delivering in a way that their money is going to be put to the best use? Well, you talked about business as well. That was one of the things that I struggled um, because of course there's a, there's a business mentality to, you know, the way you run a fire service because, you know, you are managing, you have a team of people. Um, but, and I, you know, when people say that, I'm like, okay, well, that's fine. Well, then model yourself on one of the businesses that invest in their people, the Google, the virgins, you know, some of these people that put their, their, their uh, team first, which they know them will infect, you know, much better customer service and productivity. Um, the problem that I see is that then that business shifts to money and a lot of departments shifted to EMS and ultimately to transport. And I know a lot of the time that I was, um, you know, the last 10 years in Florida, our medical direction was basically transport as many people as you can, take them to the hospital because they want to charge them for the transport fee, which is income. Now, if you think about first do no harm and, you know, the ethos that is the fire service and, and paramedicine, you know, the goal is not to shuttle someone to another building. It's to try and mitigate whatever problem they've had. And, and sometimes that's not taking them. That's giving them the good advice, telling them where they can actually seek the resources they need, keep them at home. Um, and so that, you know, that kind of direction, that almost like standing order that you will transport these people, that's when that business mentality, that that, that holy, you know, grail of uh, the dollar sign shifts from the actual ethos of what we stand for to a money-making scheme. So I think that's what I struggle with personally through my career is, you know, we should do the right thing for the patient, not the right thing for the accountant. Yeah, you know, it's, you know, funny you mention that because a lot of pharma companies get, uh, you know, a bad rap and, you know, they're all about the profits and maybe in some cases they are, but the pharma companies aren't, you know, these evil guys that are twisting their mustaches, you know, you know, hatching evil plans for world domination. They're actually truly trying to produce innovation that changes people's lives to help elongate people's lives. And, because of the cost of medicine, specifically within the United States, um, the pharma companies are are villainized, right? And it's the thing that people really need to understand is that innovation costs. You know, when when it when it takes two point five, two point six billion dollars to bring a drug to market, and then that drug only has one point nine billion dollar lifetime value. Well, the the company just lost you know, is it what, $700 million uh, in, in value, you know, it's, it's very rare that you see a blockbuster drug like a Humira come out to where this thing, you know, became a $95 billion lifetime asset, because it just cured everything, right? Um, there's a lot of uh, intermediaries that play in the space that cause, you know, healthcare to be so expensive. Um, you know, one is pharmacy benefit managers, you know, you have payers, you have a lot of people that are in the ecosystem that cause um, uh, care to be that expensive. Now, to your point, there are the actors 
in play that that caused the healthcare much like you know it becomes about money and not about the patient care um you know tra- just transport in the hospital transport them in the hospital because it's ten thousand dollars a clip for an ambulance um th- that is where i 100 agree with you that that needs to be fixed um we can't look at this in a lot of people like i said like to point the finger in one direction it's just it's it's a complex system you know so where you know the government says we're going to fix healthcare, y- 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 you can't fix it unless you're willing to make significant change to how the system works and that's you know that's kind of where where we are right now you know we we sit in it every day um you know and where where we know bringing drugs to market bringing biotech to market medical devices to market how difficult it is um especially with going through clinical trials fda regulations it's it's uh, i'll give you a uh an example a good friend of mine paul he uh, had a 180 in switzerland on a base jump in his wingsuit smacked against the cliff um ruptured his aorta it was hanging on by a thin sheath i mean it, he was literally head head broken open and uh had he been in the united states he would have died uh it, but he was in switzerland um they ended up doing a uh carbon fiber mesh sheath um to to uh basically reattach uh you know the the aorta is it was it was it was a mess and when he gets back to the united states he was there for like three months his total bill was like six thousand dollars um you know <laughs> three months of medical care emergency surgery um you know life flight i mean it, it, he just he never would have made it in the united states so when he gets back here naturally every doctor in the whole entire you know northeast wants to see this guy uh you know because it's just technology that is not available here you know i, I think it might be now you know you're going back probably 12 years that this happened um but we need to be you know when we talk about innovation we need to be able to push that innovation and not have so many bureaucratic barriers that stop or preclude that innovation or make it so cost prohibitive there should be no reason drugs are 2.56 billion dollars to bring to market it's just and and then when you look at you know the trials of any of this innovation I think like one out of every 100 make it from phase one preclinical to phase two uh, in in the trials. And, and you know, you got to go through four phases, phase four, you're in market, but there's there's got to be, you know, a better pathway, especially when you're talking about, you know, orphan and rare diseases and things along these lines. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think there's, you know, you talk about the money aspect of it. I think it's a very complex system um, and it's one that's way above my pay grade to be able to try to figure out um, when they, when they uh, figure out what the solution is, I can help them brand it and, and market it and make sure it's uh, communicated properly to the general public. But uh, there's a lot of, a lot of players um, that, that have input into it. So unless, like I said, unless there's significant change and I mean, ripping the band bandaid off change, I don't know if we're really going to solve the problem. We can make incremental changes, but I don't think we're going to solve the problem. Well, that was, uh, you know, my observation through the whole COVID thing, you know, was whether you subscribe to the vaccine, whether you didn't, there was only one real truth. And that was the underlying health of a nation 
is really going to dictate whether people have a good outcome or a poor outcome. Whether you choose to vaccinate and you have a great immune response, whether you choose not to vaccinate and you have a great natural immune response, this is exactly the same. And the problem I see is, you know, there are so many medications at the moment because we are such a chronically sick nation that treat chronic disease. If we actually truly cared about health, and I just did a post about this morning, two years later, and nothing has changed as far as the physical and mental health of this country, the underlying, you know, obesity epidemic and cancer and all these things that are killing our people, regardless of a microorganism. If we truly affected that, imagine the great minds, the money, the innovation that could then be applied to trauma medicine, pediatric cancer, some of these things that would be left if we weren't fat, sick, and nearly dead, you know, and this is the issue that I see is that we're just sustaining the dying at the moment. If we could actually be proactive, put healthy food back in, bolster local farms, put PE back in schools, take the fast food and sodas out of our schools and make healthy humans, imagine the innovations and the progress that those medical minds could then make if they're not just simply medicating the chronically ill. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of funny you mentioned the obesity and the cancer. Um, obesity is one of the, it is the root cause of almost every chronic condition, uh, type two diabetes, hypertension. Uh, it's where I live on a daily basis. The company I work for is one of the uh, top metabolic uh, companies we work with, um, you know, basically top 20 pharma and obesity. It's, it's, you know, we're, we're treating, uh, the symptoms were not fixing the root of the problem. Uh, and, and there's, we have to close that gap. You know, there's, there's going to be a percentage of the population that you have to treat. You, you don't have a choice. They're, they're too far down into their chronic condition. You can treat to help them bring them back to be healthier, but to get them back to be healthy. I think where we need to start is we need to start on the other end where, you know, and this is where I, I say education is a critical piece again, um, educating so that the future doesn't make the same mistakes as the past. Um, you know, when we look at at obesity, you know, we have drugs out there, you know, Wagovi, uh, Manjaro, Wagovi from uh, Novo Nordisk, Manjaro from um, Lilly. Those those are are you know phenomenal weight loss medications. They're helping obesity, but the problem is with with any drug is unless you have a behavior modification change, once they're off of those drugs, you know it's why the yo-yo effect. They're going to gain the weight back again, you know. So unless we have to your point healthier foods, I always question why is food not reimbursed by insurance companies because if if drugs are you know, and we look at at the cost of the Wagovis and the Manjaros and whatnot, you know, it's I think it's anywhere from twelve hundred to sixteen hundred dollars a month to re reimburse for those drugs. Why shouldn't we be reimbursed, you know, for for eating healthy, for not being sick? Um, and I think that's part of the healthcare system that needs to be addressed because if we can fix um, you know, the chronically obese, if we can uh, help fix the overweight, you know, if we can stop the progression from obesity to the chronic conditions that are associated with it through healthier lifestyle, diet, exercise, I hate the word diet because it makes it sound like, you know, you're dieting, but proper nutrition, uh, exercise to your point, reintroducing physical education, 
uh, in schools that when when they took that out of the public school system, it literally almost blew my mind because some of these kids, that is the only exercise that they were getting it was that and then you just completely took it away and then you know now you know xbox playstation the last thing they're doing when they go home is going out to exercise some of them are i mean you know we're a huge sports family so both of my kids uh play sports but you know not a lot of of uh people have that outlet to be able to do if the mom and dad are working you know you know two jobs each you know the kids don't have the ability, you know, especially in rural communities to be able to do what we're able to do. You know, I look back when I was a kid, we had six baseball teams in my town of 2000 people. They don't have any baseball teams right now. None. So our little league, six teams, they don't have a baseball team. So we went from he physically fit six baseball teams, a basketball team. And then we had our town of, of football we have no baseball teams. I mean, how, how did that happen? And there's no physical education. We need, we need to, you know, we, I think, you know, in that evolutionary chain where, you, you know, we, we walk from the monkeys, all of a sudden there's the man. I think we need to go back maybe a couple of steps towards the, the simians and, and reset where we are as a society. Have you ever seen that meme? It's exactly that, the progression, and it's got the, the homo sapien turn, but he's facing the other way, and he goes, go back, we fucked it all up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, so that was kind of what was in my mind when I was talking about this. <laughs> yeah, but and, it, and it's, it's true. It is, it is, and then that was the thing, is, you know, I am very, very lucky. I grew up, and I always tell, I grew up on a farm, so I had to walk everywhere. I, you know, mucked out stables and took care of the sheep and the, the poultry and all this stuff. You know, there was food growing in the garden, in the orchard outside. I could pick trees, uh, pick apples from the trees. And, you know, I just, I had that environment that set us up for success when it came to health. And now my son, who like yet last night was running in a track meet again, you know, I, he has watched his father be a martial artist and a firefighter and, you know, a CrossFit athlete and all these different things. And so that's been the norm for him. The problem is, you know, a lot of people that are in great shape go, oh, all you got to do is just, you know, get up at 5 a.m. and take a cold shower and then eat salad. And it's like, no, you. these children are growing up in households where their parents are the same as they're becoming. And it's not shaming. It's because we've created an environment that dissuades exercise. You know, there's there's McDonald's in every corner. You know, you have to drive. I'm in Florida. You can't really walk anywhere here. You have to drive from, you know, strip mall to strip mall to strip mall. So the environment is not set up for these people to succeed. And this is that what we need to change is that whole ethos. It's easy to be, you know, to eat poorly and not move. We have to create an environment where it's easy to eat really well and move, you know, pedestrianize downtowns and, you know, give subsidies not to these chemically covered shitty companies, but the local farmers with the organic food and the baker and the butcher and all these things. Then all of a sudden your environment, you cannot help but to start improving your health. And there will always be those anomalies. You know, you look back through time, there was always these people, Henry VIII was, you know, an athlete and he got really obese, you know, so <laughs> it's happened for a long, long time. But that majority, that middle group, you would absolutely shift. And what is heartbreaking, and we see it with our own eyes, is they say this is the first time in human history that the parents are destined to outlive their children because our health crisis is so bad. And you see these kids that are obese, even if they're not, you can tell like anatomically, physiologically, that lack of stress and exercise and movement, they are dying. They have the posture of an 80-year-old. 
So until we address this underlying health, this is going to get worse and worse and worse. And the obesity is still climbing and all these, you know, the mental health crisis is getting worse. And we've just come out of a two-year pandemic, which has just amplified everything. So we have to have this conversation. And like you said, demonizing, you know, the entire drug industry. I love Narcan. Narcan is a miracle drug and someone created that. And a lot of these I know originate even from plants, but the, uh, the intraosseous needle, absolutely life-saving. That's a medical device. So there is incredible innovation. If we can positively affect the health of the nation, then use that funding and that incredible intelligence to start addressing the other areas. We would literally, you know, revolutionize the health in this country. Yeah. And if, you know, you look at for every success, if there is 99 failures, that means that same company they didn't take a bath on on $100,000. They took a bath on $100 million in research, right? So those are the types of things where people are like, oh, well, they made $10 billion. I'm like, yeah, but look at everything they lost on the other drugs that the innovation didn't work. That's Those are the things that you have to... Um, have to really take into consideration. I mean, nobody, nobody looks at, you know, they go to a Starbucks and nobody's upset that there's 14 channel intermediaries between, you know, South America at the coffee plantation and, you know, where they're paying 13 bucks for a latte, right? Nobody's like, well, I I think that's too expensive. You know, I shouldn't be paying that much. Well, everybody in that supply chain has got to make their money. Well, it's no different in the American healthcare system where you've got the payers, you've got the PBMs, uh, you know, you've got credentialing uh, inside of, you know, pharmacies, you know, you have, it's a big business, you know? So a lot, like I said, a lot of the uh, things you have to rip the bandaid off if you do want to fix things. You know, there's not there's not going to be incremental fixes to be able to make the American healthcare system more equitable for everybody. Um, you know, because why is it fair that that I I eat healthy? I I literally do everything I can to make sure that that I'm going to live a long life. I pay a lot for my insurance. I want to make sure that my kids are healthy so that we're not a financial drain on the system. But then everybody doesn't live that same lifestyle. And then my money then has to go pay to help them inside of public assistance, where if we just all, you know, when you talk about the public good, if we're all really about the public good, we would all be focused on the roots, good food, good nutrition, exercise, and then if there is chronic illness that needs to be treated, I have no problems, but if everybody's doing their part, great. But if 50% of the people are doing their part, 50% aren't, I mean, that's, that's, that's an inequity by definition. Yeah. If only we'd had a pandemic that lasted two years where we would have all the attention on one, one group of people and we could educate (laughs) the masses. Oh, wait a second. We did. Yeah, but the thing that that blows me away as well is that the national health, the the British healthcare system, the way it was founded, the you know the one that I witnessed with my own eyes, that I saw take amazing care of my 99 year old granddad who had cancer and my 104 year old grandmother who passed away four four weeks before she uh, hit 105. Those were all they they were priced out of their private healthcare they paid for for the longest time, and it was the national healthcare that took you know, national healthcare system that took care of them in the end. If you kept it at its roots. And it was, you know, a, a, you know, the taxpayer's money. It doesn't mean that the government has to run it. Whoever be the right entity to run it, and it rather than a profit-based system, it was, you know, from this there would be an absolute drive then to make the nation as healthy as possible, so that money is only used when absolutely necessary. 
But the problem is, is that we have this system at the moment, you know, which is profit based. So there's a lot of money in sick people. And so, you know, with the whole um, industrial military complex with war, you know, where is the resistance to sending our children to war? Where is the resistance to, you know, um, you know, where where is the motivation to make our people healthy when there's a lot of people making a lot of money on ill health? You know, whether it's creating ill health through the food and the soda or whether it's the knock-on effect through the illness. You know, I'm not a proponent of of the federal government being involved in healthcare. I'm not a proponent of the federal government being involved in a whole lot. I am a huge proponent of localized healthcare because I truly believe that if we have a local uh, system, we're able to better take care of our local community than it is by the time, if you look at say uh, department of uh, health services, by the time any of the money that they have at a federal level from taxes gets down to say a lower income community in San Diego, there's pennies left out of out of a hundred dollars, you know. So so every single administrative piece and bureaucratic piece and you know hand that touches that, there's that much less at a local level, you know. And and I even get it down to a state level. Like California is ridiculously big, you know. I, I had this this discussion with a friend of mine the other day, and uh, I said California needs to be broken up into four states. It's just too big, and and it's not even from a political aspect. I mean, take politics out of it. Just look at the sheer size of it. Where you know, I think thirty nine million people now, and he's in complete disagreement. I said, okay, then then logically, what you're saying is Connecticut, uh, all the way down to the northern part of Florida, should be one state. He's like, well, that's ridiculous. I said, why is that ridiculous? That's California. You know, that's just how big it is. And when they started shutting down um, the secretary of state offices, like you used to be able to go and file an LLC or corporation, you'd have people there. You could do it in San Diego. You could do it in LA. You could do it in Riverside, all the way up the coast. They had, I think, like I don't know, 12 offices where you could actually file your business. You had people that could answer questions. They got rid of all of them and only have the one in Sacramento right now. I'm like, that is absolutely insane. You have one office to help help everybody in the business. So, you know, we have the relevant and the relative people to help. You know, you just call. And I'm like, yeah, you call and you sit on the phone for seven hours. You can't get an appointment. It, it's very difficult for business. California is an incredibly unbusiness friendly state. Um, but when they started going that that direction, I was like, okay, we're 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 definitely too big now. We need to, you know, if you, Long Beach down to the border, great, one state. And that is where I, I get back. The federal government is too far removed from San Diego, from California. Uh, you know, if Sacramento is the federal government is, and they don't know what's best for us here. You know, if if you looked at our cost of living here, the cost of living in New York, the cost of living in Chicago, Miami, you know, the higher areas that it costs to live, you know, when, when you talk, you know, socioeconomics, the problem is, is that nothing's adjusted for cost of living in the given areas. You know, when, when you read the IRS standards, I'm like, <laughs> well, I'm like that, that kind of, that kind of sucks because we don't fall within that, you know, living in San Diego. So I, I, me personally, I would like to get the federal government um, out of healthcare. I would like to localize it within a given area. You could do it county by county. Uh, you could do it state by state. But the federal government fixing healthcare is not the solution. It is is just going to create 
a bigger problem. You know, they're, they're starting to get into uh, uh, trying to manufacture insulin. I don't think they have any idea how difficult that actually is. It's the reason there's only three companies that do it now. There used to be a whole bunch, but it's it's so cost prohibitive that, you know, and then again, the pharma companies are vilified. I think there's, uh, um, was it Lilly, Santa Fe, and I can't remember what the uh, third company is, uh, might be Novo, that, that still manufacture insulin. Everybody else is like, we're out. And, you know, it's that's the reason why. And then the federal government thinks that it can do, or the state government thinks that it can do what these companies that actually do this say is very difficult to do and it's cost prohibitive, but we're doing it because it's for the good of the population. And we're using uh, that as a loss leader. You know, our other drugs are actually paying for it. It's, I don't know. I I, I digress because I, I definitely have my, my problems. I don't think the federal government fully understands the implications um, involved with um, trying to cure uh, the American healthcare system, let's say. Yeah, well, I think that was pretty obvious from both sides the last two years. So uh, I don't think anyone disagree <laughs> with you. <laughs> Trust the science. Anyway, um, all right. Well, I want to move talking of altruism because I think that's where the best healthcare system really sits is truly wanting to improve the whole nation. Um, I think Winston Churchill said you can you can measure the success of a country by the the health of its population. So I think that's you know that shows that we're uh, we're we're needing leadership again from both sides, um, but. We have a lot of incredible people. Ryan Parrott is just one of them who not only have served in uniform, but then they come out and they decide they want to do something else. So Mark, for example, has Guardian Grange. Ryan has, you know, multiple uh, nonprofits now. So let's kind of unpack this whole thing. Starting at the very beginning, how would you advise someone whether to start a nonprofit or maybe even lean towards more of the social business model? Because with, with this, for example, this is free for everyone that listens. There's no Patreon. There's no VIP access. I don't, you know, I want you to be able to, to listen to every single episode, whether you're here in Florida or Nepal or Timbuktu. And then I use the incredible sponsors that I have, which again are you know, businesses that I adore and I've used for a long, long time, they fund it, allow it to be free then for everyone that listens. So I'd almost argue this was a kind of a social business model itself and the nonprofit wouldn't be the right to, um, kind of style for me. So how would you advise someone who's wanting to do something good in the world as to which route to take? So first I would look at, is there enough people that care? Right. You know, if you if you look statistically at the um, largest uh, groups of nonprofits that are successful uh, animals, they're at the top um, uh, education uh, is another one. Um, you know, you have you have um, NPOs specifically for lower socioeconomic communities, religious affiliations. So you have to look at is there enough people that care you know start start right there that's number one number two do you have the experience to be able to do what you want to do and only you can answer that um you know if if you know if do you have business experience because again i get back to this is a business and and if you don't have the requisite business experience you may have a longer road uh, if there is a road to success, fifty uh, percent of all uh, nonprofits fail. Um, out of those fifty percent that succeed, thir- another thirty percent will be out of business within uh, uh, five to ten years. 
those the the numbers and it, but it's not any different than in in regular business right i mean the odds are stacked against you being successful um in, in any business but you have to be have to be ready for it determination uh you know there is going to be like to, you and i discussed about uh people reaching out to you on social media um speaking you know adversely against the human performance project right you know, there's going to be naysayers. There's, a, you know, if you have a vision, you have a goal, don't let anybody dissuade you from it. But do it intelligently, you know, make sure that one, you have the background to be able to do what you want to do. Uh, two, you know how to run a business. Uh, three, you're willing to go the distance. And and that, that means while your kids are sleeping, your wife or your husband's in bed, um, you're working. You know, you don't know how to do something. Yeah, great. It would be nice to be able to hire somebody to be able to do that. But again, you're not a for-profit business. So every penny that you're paying somebody else is a penny that is not going to help uh, the people, animals, the mission downstream. Um, a perfect example is uh, Google, for instance. Google's got a nonprofit platform. Uh, number one, you don't pay for, you, you get up to, I think, 100 uh, email accounts and user accounts free. Um, you know, so when you look at, at cutting costs, Google has their full entire, you know, they got sheets, they got their documents, they've got everything that you can share across the board. Well, the other thing that Google does is if you're a qualified nonprofit, they also give you $10,000 a month in ad credits to be able to advertise on, on Google pay-per-click. Um, they also have, if you qualify, you qualify for YouTube nonprofit, which means you can run discovery ads on YouTube. So they give you a massive, a massive amount of help um, to be able to effectively advertise your nonprofit for free. Microsoft does the same thing. Um, there's, I mean, just, you know, it, it's kind of funny. I have um, a friend of mine that uh, will remain nameless asked me, he said, Hey, listen, I, I need, I need help. Um, you know, are there any resources that I could use for doing this, this, and this? And I was like, there's actually one incredible resource and it's going to solve all of your problems. This is what I was like, Google, type in your question, it's going to give you the answer. So for instance, um, free nonprofit tools. If you Google that right now, it's gonna bring up, I mean, I think like 20 million pages of nothing but recommendations to give you the tools, the resources, and even Google is gonna come up in there as, as part of a resource that you can leverage. Um, if you look at like, uh, say you need a CRM, um, I think Salesforce uh, offers theirs for free, but I do know that um, all, the CRM for HubSpot is completely free. Uh, and then they have nonprofit programs that help you on top of that. MailChimp, they give nonprofit discounts. So there's all ways that you can leverage tools that are that are willing to work with nonprofits. The thing is, you've got to be willing to do the work, much like when I had to reinvent myself because I swore I would never, no matter how bad the chips were, I was always going to be able to hump cable, shoot light. I was going to be able to do something to put food on the table for my family. I was never going to be able to put in that position. And you have to be willing to do that. You have to be willing to reinvent yourself constantly through this. And I hate to say it, don't put all of your eggs in one basket. Uh, Ryan is a testament to this. The amount of phone calls that I would get of people that promised him things that would drop out. And again, things happen, you know, but if you don't enter into business understanding that there's just going to be constant punches flying at you. And, and if you're just trying to walk a straight line and just take every punch, you're never going to be successful.
So starting starting a nonprofit is a, is a difficult proposition because again, like I said, you're trying to get people to give you money where the only tangible reward for them is feeling good that they gave money to somebody, right? Now, when you look at from a company perspective or on the tax, some people might look at it as, yeah, great, I gave to a nonprofit and I was able to use it as a tax write-off. And that's that's a very, you know, it's a very valid incentive for a lot of people. They do need to um have have the tax incentives and making those donations. It's one of those things where you have to understand who you're going after to be able to do that, to make your nonprofit successful. Right. So when we look at um, the average, I think there's 331 million Americans right now out of those, I want to say there's like 90 million that are under 18 years old. I think there's another 40 million uh, that fall below the poverty line. Uh, and when I say poverty, like uh, 54,000 uh, and below, but the poverty line is like 27,000. Um, but if you take all of them out, that's your total market. And then when you start looking at at 1.5 million charities in the United States across your total market, you have to really be able to identify who's going to be willing to be engaged with your nonprofit. And then the other part of it is how do you keep them engaged over the long term? The statistics have said that 49% of people um, would like to be engaged in a monthly giving at, at any level. Um, so start focusing on on that because the one-offs getting the one-offs takes just as much effort as it does for the monthly giving um leveraging the online channels um you know facebook has their uh facebook for nonprofits instagram instagram for nonprofits learning all of these channels to be able to um engage with your potential donor base it's it's critical uh, to understand, but then simultaneously understanding how to use these tools. The other part of it is when you do have the resources to hire somebody else on or bring in volunteers, you've got to be able to have the understanding on how to run these, run the people that are helping you. You know, if you don't have the understanding of the tools, you're relying on somebody who may not have an understanding of the tools, but, you know, they 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 sold a good game and, you know, they said what they had to do on their resume to get the job. Um, so those, are, you know, starting starting at that level, I would say educate yourself. If you are not a business person, being in a nonprofit is probably not for you. It's very difficult, and it's be very difficult to succeed. Um, when you look at what you should be um, keeping internally within your organization, there's the eighty twenty rule. Eighty goes out to the uh, to the um, beneficiaries, 20% stays in and run internal operations. I think that number is very difficult to stick to. But if if you can keep it closer to that number, the better off you're going to be. So if you say 15% of what you're going to be allocating is going to be towards marketing, right? And you have 80-20, uh, and then say you do a million dollars, well, that means that you're only going to have $50,000 left over to pay yourself a salary. So if you get a million dollars in donations, you, know, you pay out 800000 50, you know, 150,000 is going towards marketing, um, advertising, things on those lines, and you only have 550,000 left over. Is that realistic for you? You know, so you have to be able to run those numbers, have to be able to understand the market. You have to be able to, I mean, it's, like I said, it's a business. Um, and if, if you're not capable of doing that or not willing to put in the effort to learn how to do it, uh, I definitely would not get involved with, with starting a nonprofit. 
So another thing that I see people do is they they come out of a situation. You know, let's say, for example, they've been through their own mental health struggle. Now they've come out the other end. They're inspired. They want to make a difference, and they start a nonprofit. But there are a lot of nonprofits in the same space already. What would be if someone's you know coming out and that's one of their ideas? Like, how do they? navigate that maybe there there is a, a nonprofit they could join or align with rather than starting their own or conversely like with this podcast you know i looked around there was nothing and it was like all right there's your sign then there's some great firefighter podcasts but not one that looked at you know the health and the human being in the uniform at that time you know, seven years ago now um so then you know okay now i've looked at the landscape there is a space for me to do this thing that i want to do so it would be looking at the uh, partner that has um, fully similarities with you so that both of you can travel on a parallel path. So if, they, if they're competing completely in the same space, you know, there's not going to really be um, a reason for them to partner with you. Um, but if they're doing X and you're doing Y and then there's a crossover between the two, then that's a good partner to have to be able to help you drive forward, much like Ryan, for instance, with the Bird's Eye View Project, uh, much like uh, Sons of the Flag, when uh, he uh, would partner with other organizations that weren't weren't burn, burn organizations, but they were parallel in in how they could help each other. Um, Rose Crans Florian, I think, was one of them. Um, the other part of that is I, I always harp on board of directors get a proper board of directors within your nonprofit and make sure that from a marketing perspective, you have somebody who knows what they're doing. You have somebody like me that's helping guide the mission from a marketing perspective. Uh, you have somebody else, you know, that might be just, you know, the la creme de la creme for events planning. You have another person that is in PR and media relations so that anytime you're doing a great event, you have the local media, they have the relationships Having those board of directors on board are absolutely critical to your success. The other part of it is making sure that you have the board of directors that are proper for financial uh, reasons. In other words, it would be great to have a bunch of people that are on board that know what they're doing, but it's even better to have ones that know what they're doing that also have the high net worth individuals that can help sustain you uh, as you're growing, uh, that also have the relationships with the business, businesses that can help you. Um, you know, it's it's... It's one of those things where you have to isolate the person in their board role to be able to get the most out of them and then have a thorough understanding of what that person's responsibility is. person might be the, the best marketer on the planet, but they might not be the best marketer for you. They might be uh, a great marketer, but they have unbelievable relationships with the local community and they have unbelievable relationships with high net worth individuals that can help donate and get the word out and help you grow your nonprofit. So the board of directors is is absolutely critical. Um, a proper board of directors is critical. Uh, Ryan has always done a really good job um, at that of, of bringing in um, the right board members to help drive the mission forward, whether it was Sons of the Flag or this Bird's Eye View project. Um, but it's also those same board of directors that have helped mentor him. You know, they they helped him be successful because they didn't want the nonprofit to fail, but they also, you know, even more importantly, didn't want Ryan to fail. 
um, you know, so it was in their best interests um, and in their hearts to help him be successful. So speaking of marketing, my own personal experience, um, there's so much value seemingly put in social media. And what I have found with me and the podcast is I'll share, you know, some things and they'll just go viral, you know, but when it's something that's actually worthwhile and, you know, it has true value, I find that the, the, the matrix, the, the, uh, you know, whatever they call that, um, the algorithm is what I'm looking for, isn't really suited to actually disseminating great information. So, you know, what is your experience of marketing through social media? And are there any, you know, tips or tricks that, that people listening can apply? So I have, I have a theory and it's whether it's right or wrong, it's untested. So, you know, don't use this as fact. I don't believe that the social media networks want the dissemination of good information out into the general public. You know, again, it's untested, but I think it's much like the media. And I'm going to, I'm going to give you an anecdotal story. Um, my wife, you know, my wife is a publicist, a literary publicist. There is a uh, book that that you would probably enjoy um, called The Gift of Fire uh, by an author uh, named Dan Caro, C-A-R-O. And he was two years old. Um, his mother was out mowing the lawn. She left the gas canister uh, in the garage. He, one of his cars was up on a shelf. He stepped on the gas canister flipped over boiler was there flash boom burns him over uh his his uh entire body right and uh shriners uh he 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 was going to die and uh shriners took him in uh gave him all the medical care um he, i mean he's literally to this day i mean he's he's hundreds of surgeries uh burned all over his body but what that event taught him was resilience right you know through through his entire life he's had to deal with adversity whether it was bullies at school um whether it was just more surgeries um you know you name it i'm not gonna i'm not gonna give his whole entire backstory because i want people to actually read his book because it's phenomenal um ends up he he went paragliding he skis um he can't he has to live in colder climates because uh it burned his pores shut um, so he can't sweat. My wife was his publicist and could not get him booked on any shows. Oh yeah. By the way, he couldn't play in his, his instruments. His whole entire family was musicians, lost his hands due to, due to it. So he's like, well, I'll try snare drum. And so he would duct tape the sticks to his arms Problem was, was that when he'd take the duct tape off, would rip his skin grafts off. <laughs> so he figured out a way to use wristbands and rubber bands to um, be able to play the drums. To me, it was super relatable because I'm a, I've been playing drums my entire life. And to watch him with no hands be able to do far beyond what I can do with two hands that are perfectly functioning. It's unreal. He made a uh, first seat LSU jazz ensemble. I mean, so he's a really, really talented drummer. Um, so she couldn't, I mean, national media, it was, it was like, they didn't want the disfigurement. They didn't want 
even though it was a feel good story and it was great, she couldn't get him booked on anything other than some local uh, things. One was in Boston. But when you look at this guy, man, and he's just the nicest guy on the planet. And he's such a rad, rad person. Uh, I got to hang out with him in San Diego when he came out here. And I think, in my own opinion, social media is much like that type of media where they don't put out the messages that need to be put out. They put out the ones that don't necessarily need to be put out. Um, you know, you when you when I when I go into my Instagram feed, I've got nine million photos of of guys that are perfect chiseled abs and you know, girls that are absolutely stunningly gorgeous. And I'm like, hmm, doesn't really look like, you know, a 50-year-old guy that that's that that's struggling, you know, to to make it through his work day, but okay. I was like, you know, I was like, I don't really know what I have have you know uh, relatable to to a girl in her 20s or or even a guy in his 30s you know that's you know other than trying to get in shape but i'm never going to look like that again uh you know it's at, so they show me the things that they want me to see not the things that i i need to see um there's also the algorithm that plays on the other side of it that looks at the things that i do look at like i watch a lot of comedy and uh so i just uh, like my feed is just literally comedy 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 but then they'll start injecting um you know political things in there too and i'm just kind of really come on social media to see political things you know i come in and check out what my friends are doing you know what what what's james doing on the human performance project where are they now and things along those lines but you know i constantly you know get these things that i i shouldn't be saying that why am i saying it um so i, I think the the social media platforms are they're they're not a good thing in my opinion, I, I really, uh, again, I think it's back to the evolutionary chain of the guy going, we fucked up. Let's go back. I think we're there with social media right now as well. And from a father, I try to limit it with my kids, but it's very difficult. It's just the world they live in. It's how they live. So I think all we can try to do is educate them and properly uh, contain them and shift their perceptions on what the world is. You know, the world is not a bunch of, you know, great looking dudes with chiseled abs and you know beautiful women laying on beaches that that is not the reality you know my daughter's like oh we i would love to be able to go on a yacht i'm like me too <laughs> like, i don't think i don't think any person in the world said i don't want to be able to be on that yacht but that's not reality no. um so i i think you know trying to market on social media is is very difficult and you know you see you see the things that like ryan puts out it's a perfect example he'll you know he'll put out just unbelievable stats on, you know, you know, burn survivors. And then it'll get, it'll get like three likes. Right. And then it'll, it'll be him doing a base jump off of a crane and it'll get 5,000 views. It'll get, you know, 500 likes. And I'm, I'm like, okay, th there's something wrong with this here. Risking his life, you know, making a base jump, just having some fun. But here's stats of people who actually need help in the social media is, you know, squashing it because it's not really relevant. And maybe people don't want to see that. So I think the critical piece of trying to help people market effectively to their audience is number one, first, building your audience. Um, if I could say this, do not buy likes. There are services that will promise you 50, 60, 100,000 likes. But, you know, there, there are people over in Indonesia, you know, Pakistan and whatnot. And that's just what they do. They just, you know, they are paid to like things. And uh, so so don't buy likes. Um, be authentic. 
being authentic is absolutely critical. Um, and make sure that everything you do uh, connects psychologically and emotionally with the people you're trying to reach out to. Um, look at what other people are doing that are successful in their campaigns. Um, you know, it's 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 all part of market research. You know, when when you look, and you're like, oh, I have an idea. Will this campaign work? Start looking at people who have done similar things and see what the response rates were. What were their likes? You know, what was their engagement? That was the other the other critical thing that that I always try to educate people on is great. They got a like. That's a really simple thing to do. I can click on a heart all day long. I can click on a thousand of them, and it really doesn't impact me. But did I did it engage me enough to make a comment? Did it affect me enough emotionally to want to actively engage in that person's posts? That's how I look at conversions. I look at did they actually continually engage and did they, you know, keep going back and forth? And, you know, perfect example is like, you know, when you do a post and somebody comments and you respond to them and then all of a sudden there's a comment thread and other people get actively engaged in that comment thread. That is a successful metric. If it's just a post where, you know, a thousand people liked it, but nobody commented on it. It's not really that much of an engagement metric to say, I got a thousand likes. Yeah, well, that's something I've talked about as well. The only metric that I really hold dear is when people hit play on a podcast episode, because I know that is truly an opportunity to learn something. And yes, you know, there's there's posts that I make that, um, you know, I'll reshare some phenomenal stories. And, you know, like the one I did today, I'll, I'll do, you know, a few paragraphs and actually try and disseminate my thoughts and it might help some people. But again, like you said, if it's a little heart or a thumbs up sign, do they really read it or they just see it as they were scrolling through? So I love the podcast thing uh, element. The problem is if you research promoting podcasts, unless you have, again, the shiny object, you know, the studio with the guns and Bibles in the back and, you know, the, the this tight grunt style t-shirt in your interview, you know, that's <laughs> the rest of us that are just doing audio podcasts, you know, you, this, all you've got really is word of mouth. So one of the things that you talked about um, was how to successfully, you know, build the brand, but also how to tell your story. So when we have a social media um, network that doesn't seem to really allow people to get out great, you know, meaningful stories and content, when you have media that only, you know, unless you align with whatever values they belong to, again, you're probably not going to find yourself in there. How does... Um, you know, someone who's starting a, a nonprofit or outside of that, someone who's just got an altruistic business model, how do they tell a story in this kind of landscape that we're in at the moment? Telling a story is one of the hardest uh, things to do for a brand because it's the story that has to align with every single aspect of what you are culturally, visually, uh, psychologically, it's got to, it's got to resonate. Um, and it's got to be told in a way that's simple for people to understand. Sometimes, you know, we're, we're humans are complex creatures, right? So, you know, telling the story, um, you know, again, another anecdote, um, a lot of what I do on a daily basis is I, I sit in the room with scientists, doctors, people that are so much smarter than me, but then I have to translate that science down into an understanding of what the general public's going to understand. So you can talk, I mean, you might as well be, be speaking Mandarin Chinese and, and Spanish. I mean, and, and have no idea that each other even exists. Right. So being able to tell that story and simplifying everything is the most critical piece of it, but it also has to be that 
emotional attachment, something that people can latch on to um, within that story. Uh, Ryan's is, you know, is, is an unbelievable story. You know, he, he went off to war and much, much like a lot of our, our veterans, you know, came back and he was severely damaged, um, uh, not only physically, but emotionally. And I would probably say, you know, from, from what he has told me more, more emotionally uh, than physically. But the one thing that he realized was that no matter how bad things got, there's always somebody that needed help more. Um, and a lot of those people don't have the support infrastructure, right? And Ryan happened to have a big support infrastructure when he came back. He had people that wanted to help him. A lot of people don't have that. So being able, him being able to tell his story in a way that impacted people to want to be involved with Ryan. not You could put Ryan in with coffeecups.com. People are going to want to be involved with him, right? Because it's it's his story. It's a real story, and it's something that people can align with uh, emotionally, and that they can hang their hat on his promise. And I think that's that's the biggest thing with telling your stories. It's got to be your promise to whoever your audience is, and whoever's involved with you, whoever's working with you for you, anybody that that touches you, they have to understand that 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 your promise is what you keep and we don't often hold to our promises it just is what it is we see it across the board every single day um but in a nonprofit perspective you're you're held to a much higher standard and so telling your story there has to be a unique number one um it has to be um a story that resonates with people and it has to be resonate with them at a psychological and a deep-seated level to where their heart actually wants to be involved with you. And it's it's a very, very, very difficult thing. And you have to look deep inside yourself and soul search about what that is that makes you and your story that much different that is going to make people want to engage with you. Well, speaking of that, I mean, the, the story that he brought obviously you had sons of the flag the origin story there then you had um david metcalf you know taking his own life and obviously that was ryan's true north as he as he calls it i made a comment on on the the 7x team at the very end if you get a group of people and you put them in a small space and then you apply copious amounts of pressure and disasters that is the perfect ingredient list for reality television. Then you sit back with your popcorn and you watch these people tear about, tear themselves apart and you feel better about yourself and you go about your day. Conversely, with this team that we just travel with, all walks of life from business to some of the best, you know, endurance athletes and skydivers and warfighters, um, we had so many things go wrong and all it did was pull that bond tighter and tighter. So talk to me about the the team that you surround yourself with and how you leverage the the relationships that you have when people understand the mission so for me i always look for uh those people that would would they when you know when shit hits the fan are they going to be there you know as the cleanup crew to help me clean up are are they the ones that are always going to be near and dear are they going to help me and it's it's very difficult to identify you know those people um and it doesn't matter whether you're nonprofit doesn't matter whether it's just every walk of life there's certain 
things that you can see. And, and I'm a pretty good judge of character. I can see it in people's eyes, um, you know, just by looking at them and talking to them on whether they're going to be the right people to sustain. But I also know that even the best of the best, even if they have their proper intentions, could potentially, you know, fall off. But I think it's aligning on the expectations of what I need and what the expectations of, of everybody else is and what their expectations are back. Um, you know, I'll, I'll bring it back to the legacy jump in 2020 at the World War One Museum and Memorial. We were one team, much like you guys were on the Human Performance Project, because all of us had our roles. We all knew what the mission was. We all knew where we were going. We all know what we were doing. We all knew what the end, the very end, you know, light at the end of the tunnel was. We knew it. I think where the problems come in is where there's malalignment and and that that people don't have the understanding of what the light at the end of the tunnel is um it's it's it that does create tension and whenever tension is created in an organization it's either going to make people bond together and hunker down and assure that that mission is achieved or it's going to cause it to blow up and i think True leadership is understanding how to assure the latter doesn't happen. And it takes a person like Ryan, like yourself, you know, that's, that's why, you know, some people are just natural born leaders. People look to them, uh, you know, as, as the guiding light. Beautiful. Well, we've been all over the place with the nonprofit world. I want to make sure we haven't missed anything glaring. So before we go to some closing questions, are there any other areas you want to disseminate to the audience that are thinking about creating a nonprofit or maybe have already started one? Yeah. You know, I, I, you know, I always talk about tangentials. There's things that you cannot possibly see, but always be looking for them. Look around the corners, you know, uh, you know, a good example is, um, you know, the human performance project, you have EJ Caterson, you have all of these, you know, awesome medical professionals that are out there, but there, there's a huge push in human performance within the academic community and universities in the United States right now. Um, I think Texas A&M has one. I think, um, Harvard, uh, is running studies. There, there's just Stanford, they're running studies. So, you know, when you look at where can you align, you know, that particular instance, you can look in academia, um, the, those, those institutions who's publishing, you know, you know, you look at the PR aspect of it, um, you know, what, what podcasts, what blogs, who's, who's actually diving deep into the subject area that you happen to specialize in with your nonprofit, um, to your point earlier, collaborations, you know, be looking for those collaborations, especially the ones that might have more social influence than you do, um, because that's always going to be a critical piece of it. But also assuring that they have a vested interest in seeing your success. Um, I do know that there's there's several people that latched on to Ryan um, because they wanted the success for themselves. You know, it's almost like those people, um, you'll see them on uh, TikTok, you know, they'll you know, walk up to, you know, the waitress and be like, what do you think you deserve for a tip? And she's like, I don't know. Oh, just give me a number, $300. Okay. Here's $300. You know, that's not for the waitress. Yeah. Great. She got $300. It's so that they get more views and get more followers and whatnot on their TikTok channel. And it's kind of like, 
assure that that your interests are aligned, that they're they have a vested interest in your success, you have a vested vested interest in their success. Um the one thing within um nonprofits is always be looking for the organizations that help nonprofits, the Googles. Understand how how their programs help you. Uh, look for the nonprofit uh, people. There's nonprofit web hosting. Uh, there's nonprofit uh, trade show booth pricing. You know, there's there's all of these uh, areas that can help you. That when you go to say work with an agency, they're not necessarily concerned about that. They're concerned about oh, okay, we can get this done. Hey, here's the the vendor that we normally use. Not even thinking that you're a nonprofit because they're not linearly aligned with your business. So you have you have to be your own advocate um, to make sure because every penny that you're saving is a penny that you can help the beneficiaries downline that you're trying to help. Uh, the other critical thing, and this is this kind of uh, and. Ryan's great about this. Um, other nonprofits, not so much. Uh, a lot of them have a what What did you do for me today mentality and not so much. Thank you so much for what you did for me yesterday. Um, and assure you don't go down that path. It, be grateful that, you know, even if it was a dollar that they gave you yesterday, it was a dollar that they may not have had. Um, and just be thankful that they helped with any little bit that they could have given, um, and don't make it that, you know, what did you do for me today? Uh, and, and unfortunately I've seen that a lot in the nonprofit industry. And then it's almost like, you know, you, you kind of become blackballed and on the outside. Um, and if you do, you know, opt to not help, if you can't help, if you find yourself in a position where it's not just the right timing to help, um, and then the other part of it is look at the cyclical nature of donations when they happen. November and December are absolutely off the charts, the highest months that donations happen. Plan accordingly. When is the least? Naturally, January. People are coming off of the holidays. It's a terrible time to be asking people for money, right? So learn learn the cyclical natures, learn the data. Um, learn about grants, learn about grant writing. There's all of these things that you can do, but you have to buckle down and do it. This is your business. It's your livelihood. You have to make it happen because nobody's going to have the same level of interest and the tenacity that you do with your own business. Well, one more thing that I've heard you know, several guests on the show talk about, um, you know, there, there will be a nonprofit on the outside looking in, wow, you know, they're doing amazing things for veterans, et cetera, whatever it is. But then you start exploring it and then you realize the administrative costs are huge and the actual dollars that are getting to the true recipients are a fraction of, of the donation. What is happening there and how can people avoid that early on in their, you know, creation of their own nonprofit? So I think there's, there's, two separate sides of it. Look at the mistakes that others have made. Um, I'm not going to mention any names, but there are some larger ones that decided to take their entire staff out on a huge cruise. Not, not the best optics. Um, and then there, you know, if, if they, whoever brought in the most donations, you know, they, they won awards and that kind of defeats the purpose. I mean, that sounds like more of a, a corporate model and not a nonprofit model. So look at where others are, are making the mistakes. And if, if it's something that feels wrong in your heart, it probably is, uh, you know, so that that's, that's number one. Um, number two, when you're forming it uh, and, and you're building this, 
assure that you have your culture and your values deadlock aligned. I mean, if you if you can't translate your culture and your values into your mission and everybody that's involved doesn't have a firm grasp of what your culture and values are, it's a huge miss. And it, it affects your brand because that's part of your brand promise. Again, without the promise, you don't have a brand. Um, so I would say that those two things are absolutely critical um, and assure that everybody that you touch understands the mission. It's If you have any misalignment on that, you're not going to be successful. And we've circled right round to the fire service again. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. All right. Well, then I want to throw some closing questions at you if you've got time. Sure. All right. The first one that I love to ask, and obviously you are married to Karina, as you said, um, in, in the world of publishing, so this will be interesting. Is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Okay. So... My two favorite books. I'm just going to put them out there. So anybody who's a therapist or a psychologist, psychiatrist, please do not hold this against me. My first favorite book is American Psycho. Unbelievable book. So well written. It puts you not only... I, I look at good writers as, can they pull me into the book and make me feel like I'm living that person? And the writer, I can't remember what the gentleman's name is, um, but the writer did do that. And whether he pulls you in, you feel like you're the victim, you feel like you're the serial killer. It's unreal how the story is told. The movie's not good. Book, unbelievable. That's number one. Um, so the second one would be A Civil Action. They also made a movie about it, John Travolta. Movie's okay. Wasn't great. Book, I couldn't put it down. It was just absolutely unbelievable and it's a true story um i'm sure at some level american psycho is a true story too but it's actually about uh the cancer clusters in woburn massachusetts um that uh ended up happening from a couple of the uh, leather tanneries runoffs that went into the town's water systems um much like an aaron, aaron brockovich uh style thing but happened in massachusetts those two books uh absolutely phenomenal um I like Romeo and Juliet. Uh, you know, I like I like some Shakespeare type stuff. Uh, any any of the short cutting uh, business bibles, um, you know, the Four Hour Work Week, um, Rich Dad Poor Dad, um, you know, th those type of books. Um, I I like to go to Barnes and Noble, and a lot of times what I do is I don't shop by what the title is or say I'll, I'll shop by the packaging and like so i just bought a uh, cookbook and the actual packaging was it's a small cookbook recipes aren't actually very good but it was inside of an egg crate a small little egg crate so you pull it out and it's a whole bunch of breakfast recipes um and so that that i would say if, if you do go to barnes and noble i think it's still there i just bought it a couple months ago um but yeah uh cookbooks i like because i like cooking a lot but uh, yeah, Civil Action, American Psycho, those are my two recommendations for anybody listening. Oh, Gift of Fire, Dan Caro. Hands down, uh, one of the best books I've ever read. Uh, Karina handed it to me at, God, it was probably like 10 at night. She said, you have to read this. And I was like, and at that point in time, she was working in the self-help industry uh, for a uh, for a world's biggest publisher there. And uh Stuff she would hand me was just not my flavor. 
but she handed me this book and I was like, all right, I was like, you know, do the husband thing and read it five 30. The next morning I finished the book. And, uh, it was one of those things where you, you can't possibly put the book down once you start. And, you know, it's not a novel, it's not, you know, war and peace, um, you know, but it's, you know, it's a solid, solid book. And, man, you laugh, you cry, you're mad, you're sad. I mean, it's it's everything across the board. If you if you really do want to read a good book, Gift of Fire, Dan Caro. Beautiful. Well, thank you for those. Actually, I need to see if I can get down on the show then. Yeah, he he's such a rad guy. Karina still has his contact information too, so you can reach out there. Brilliant. Thank you. All right. Well, then the uh, the next question is: There a movie and or documentary that you love? Movie, uh, yeah, you know, probably everybody's already seen it. My cousin Vinny, that's uh, that's my favorite movie of all time. Uh, you know, I, I wanted to go to law school um, after I graduated college, and I took my LSATs, and then I started working with attorneys, and realized I don't want to be an attorney. And it was I was working with a lot of them out of uh, LA. You know, it's just you know what? I don't mind defending attorneys. I, I don't like attorneys at all. They gum up the system. They make everything a problem. So any attorneys out there, I'm sorry, including my best friend who's an attorney. Um, but uh, my cousin Vinny would definitely have to be uh, one of them. And uh, man, I, I hate to say it, I'm a sucker for Christmas movies. Uh, everything, you know, all the Hallmark movies, like when Christmas time comes, day after Thanksgiving, I'm deep in my couch and I'm just, I'm literally watching like the, the princess switch and all these kind of weird, goofy, you know, chick flicks that nobody would expect, you know, a, a tattooed <laughs> a guy that's really doesn't have much, much uh, compassion <laughs> for things like that. But I love it, man. I mean, it's like, I sit down and my kids make fun of me, but I don't care. So yeah, those, there's, those are kind of, those are kind of where I'm a, I'm a comedy guy. Um, you know, I, I really kind of dive deep into the comedy. I don't like the horrors, um, so much as it uh, makes me not sleep. Um, I like thrillers, um, anything, uh, anything, uh, Tom Cruise action related is pretty cool. Um, you know, love the, I love the new Maverick. I uh, love the Jack Reacher movies. Uh, but all those were good. Um, let's see what other one was good documentary huh you know what uh documentary uh food inc was a good one um fat sick and nearly dead was good um there was another one oh i know what it was uh from the brand space there was a documentary on the history of every logo of the nfl since the dawn of time and it was how the evolution of all the team's logos came to be. That was hands down probably one of the best documentaries I've seen. Uh, it was so well done. And it just, it, it was literally like the uh, it was Green Bay Packers was like sponsored by a meat packing plant. So it was like Joe and Tommy's Green Meats or something like that. Something weird, you know. And so that was actually it was like you know the Green Bay Joe and Tommy Green Bay Packer Meats or whatever the hell it was, you know. And so it's like kind of funny to watch how all of these teams evolved into actual teams and what their logos looked like. Where they're, I mean, it was some of it was absolutely horrible. Like you're looking, you're like that's not a logo, uh, you know. And and how they grew into these iconic global brands. So that's a good one. 
Beautiful. Firstly, I had green meat in uh, upstate New York on a summer camp once, and I shit myself for about three days. So <laughs> I think that's not a good, not a good brand name for me. But the other thing with logos is there's a great meme out there, and it was the Starbucks mermaid, like from when it was first created, and it, she gets closer and closer, and then the last one they they drawn, and it was like the Grudge Girl climbing out. <laughs> <laughs> so that's another good meme. This, the internet has some some brilliant stuff. All right. Well, then we talked about um, getting trying to get Dan on the show. Are there any other incredible humans that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Actually, there is. There is. There's a gentleman named uh, Ken Druck, and he probably arguably one of the best guys on the planet. So um, whenever there's a national or a global disaster, he's uh, he's called in to uh, help uh, people with grief. Um, he's also um, an aging expert, um, especially now that he's got on in his years. Um, so he, he, he is a phenomenal, phenomenal guy. If you go to kendruck.com, D-R-U-C-K, um, unbelievably skilled with the media. He, you know, he's always on uh, every media outlet. Um, you know, if there's an unfortunate plane accident, um, you know, he'll get called in as as the grief expert. Um, and uh, he's become a good friend of our, our family. Uh, he's a wonderful, wonderful guy. Um, Karina's actually got some really cool people. You might want to hit her up, you know, some people. Um, I got it. She was just talking to me the other day. I think she connected you with one already, right? Um, she did. I'm trying to remember who it was now. Um, I can't remember if we've done one or not. I've got to go back through all my uh, my emails and make sure I haven't missed anything because the last few weeks ramping up for 7X. I mean, I just right yeah. now I'm, I'm working on getting the web pages back up to current with all the episodes. <laughs> I got to do promo videos that I haven't done because, yeah, I mean, the ramp up has been uh, pretty much the last month has been written off. So if I've missed it, I will go back and make sure that uh, that I do follow up on that. Yeah, if you do need the uh, connection again, uh, let me know. I'll make the introduction. He is legitimately a fabulous fabulous guy um love love him with all of our heart um the unfortunate thing is some of the other ones that uh could have connected you with they've passed on um you know whether they're just awesome people in the uh, base jumping community um that uh, that uh, formerly served didn't serve were actively involved um or just you know older generation <clears throat> that uh, happened to pass on um, but yeah, I, th I think Ken would be a good one for you. Yeah. Well, let's make that happen. Thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. All right. Well then the very last question before we make sure everyone knows how to find you yourself, what do you do to decompress? Now? Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so now, uh, you know, it's kind of funny in 2020, um, I started going down the path with the company that I'm working with now. We were uh, their agency of record. And uh, when COVID hit and things kind of imploded on the consumer side, uh, everything took a downturn, all my production work, everything went away. Um, the CEO uh, offered me a job as chief creative officer and their head of digital transformation. And 
since then, I haven't had a whole lot of time outside of work for, you know, what I, what I call lead time that I had before. Um, so I like to, uh, do triathlons, um, still, you know, make a base jump here or there. It's a little more difficult cause I can't take the risk of getting arrested, um, due to my job. Uh, so th- I can't be jumping the illegal buildings or the bridges. Not that I ever did. I'm just of saying, course not. I never um, tried any drugs before the fire service either. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know what I'm saying. So, I've, um, so I, I still like to uh, get out, and make a base jump uh, every now and again. Uh, as as funny as it sounds, we got a Peloton a couple of months ago, and you know, it's I, I get to work so early in the morning that I don't normally have time to work out. So I went and you know bought a whole bunch of weights and built out our garage and uh, bought a Peloton, and in that thing. I mean, it has been helping me melt off the weight, get in shape, um, you know, running uh, my uh, longest distance now, 10 miles that I ran last week, um, just rode 60, you know, so I'm getting back uh, back in shape, back in the saddle with that Peloton. I'm telling you, it that thing is a lifesaver. Those guys created something, something special. I wish I was, uh, you know, the creator of that brand. Uh, it's the, the programs that they have. I found a couple of the instructors that just literally kicked my ass all over the place, um yeah it's uh so that's that's kind of what i do to decompress uh drums still uh you know i go i'm I'm a metal drummer you know by by heart and so you know, go kick the shit out of the skins for for an hour and a half to two hours drive the uh, kids and the wife crazy with the the noise and that's uh that's basically what i do brilliant Beautiful. Yeah. The Peloton one, there's, there's one, I think it's, her name's Robin. She's one of the the top people in Peloton. Someone I've had on my, my list to try and reach out to one day, because as you said, you know, there's a lot of fads that come and go, but it seems like that, that particular organization, they've done a lot of great things. I'm sure COVID helped as well, you know, having that home exercise equipment, but it doesn't seem like a lot of those ended up being coat racks. They actually seem to really be engaging and keep people working out on them. Yeah. You know, the thing was, is I don't think Peloton ever saw the pandemic ending. Uh, you know, because I think they over-indexed on their orders because my wife was like, we should buy one. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not spending $2,500 on a stationary bicycle. I'm like, it's just not going to happen. She's like, no, they're, they're, they're renting them now. I'm like, what do you mean they're renting them? She's like, you can rent them. I was like, is it a lease or is it a rental? Like, I, I just want to give it back. I'm cool to give it back. She's like, no, you can just give it back. I'm like, really? And she said, yeah. And I was like, I kind of like that plan. I'm like, let's do that. I was like, so what's the total out of pocket? It's like 128 bucks a month, but you get the program and all that stuff, which is like 49 or 50 bucks a month. And you're just paying the rental fee uh, for it. And if you don't want it, and I'm kind of like now, now that I'm into it, I'm kind of like bummed that I didn't buy it because I'm like, you know what, I'm, gonna, <laughs> I'm spending three times the amount that I normally would have. Uh, but uh, it's, they got a great thing. That's actually, you know what? Uh, uh, there's a girl uh, that I take her classes and she's an absolute maniac. Her name's Kendall Tool. And maybe you should reach out to her because she's got a phenomenal story. Um, she's open about it. It's it's in the media. Um, uh, and it's about uh, she went through severe bouts of depression. Uh, and and I think she continues to struggle with it. Um, but she's beautiful girl, happy-go-lucky, you know, just like, you know, that, that person that you're like, oh, man, she looks so much fun to hang out with. But she was, you know, struggling with her own internal issues you know and and she's she's uses uh peloton and her social platform as a way to make people understand that they're you know they're not alone in their struggles and you know so she's she's out there maybe that's uh somebody you should reach out to because dude i'll tell you one thing i do her classes and i am 
pouring sweat and just like after 45 minutes to an hour i'm like on my deathbed because of her so <laughs> brilliant yeah there was someone else in that peloton family and i'm gonna have to look i don't want to do it now while we're talking but i'll have to look after because there was a another woman in that group and i wonder if that was the the lens that drew me to start following her so it would be interesting if it was the same person all right. Well, then the very last question then for people listening, where are the best places online or social media to follow you and reach out to you? So LinkedIn is the best place to reach out to me. Uh, it's um, pretty much the only social platform I'm still on outside of business. Um, I, you know, I keep my other accounts open just so I can manage platforms for clients and whatnot, but I'm not active on social media, uh, at all. Um, too much. I'm on it all the time for work. Uh, I'm on it all the time for clients. The last thing I want to do is get home and be on it all the time. So if I am on it, it's to catch up on, you know, people, people like you and the things that you guys are doing and, you know, just to watch some funny skits. And then I kind of, I kind of shut it down and turn it off. So LinkedIn is pretty, pretty much where I am. They can find me. I still have my Instagram. Uh, and, uh, but other than that, those are, those are two, two platforms that you can find me on. Um, yeah, I, 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 I know I kind of sound like a hypocrite because I always say that, you know, they're, they're necessary marketing vehicles is having social media, but there there's, in my opinion, there's a time and a place for them. And, uh, at night after I'm done with work, it's not the time or the place. Yeah, no, I agree completely. They're a necessary evil, I think for, uh, disseminating the podcast stuff and, and there are some beautiful beautiful things on there but they absolutely can suck you in and if you start clicking on the wrong things all of a sudden your algorithm is going to be full of very very negative uh inputs so yeah definitely uh use sparingly yeah and it makes i mean you know you start you start going down the the rabbit hole you catch one fox news or cnn or you know whatever and inevitably something's going to piss you off and you know it's it's just sets you up for for a shitty mood and there's just no reason for it you know i i i would rather be happy for the rest of my day instead of get sucked into that world absolutely well i just want to thank you so much i mean you and your journey and and obviously when you you met ryan and the interaction with all the nonprofits that that you know you were a part of and then obviously i finally became a part of has been amazing but your marketing and business advice you know there's a lot of people out there that whether they are serving whether they transitioned out they want to keep doing good in the world they want to make the world better and you've really given us some some tools to start looking at is that the right fit you know who do we align with and if we are going to go all in then you know what are some of the the uh the things that we can use to maximize our impact in the world so i just want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your knowledge today well thanks a lot for having me on james appreciate you